From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. FEMA has deployed more than 2,400 employees to Louisiana, Mississippi and other states devastated by Hurricane Ida, which made landfall on Sunday. The agency has shipped more than 3.5 million meals and 2.5 million liters of water, among other items. To states affected by the storm, the Army Corps of Engineers response teams have been deployed to remove debris and provide temporary housing and power. The Army has issued a request for proposals for a broad range of IT systems and services that will act as the basis for its modernization effort. The RFP called the Information Technology Enterprise Solutions for Hardware will cover servers, workstations, notebooks, networking equipment and more. The Army requires that the networks must work with systems operated by other services. Proposals are due September 24th. NextGov reports that the Veterans Affairs Department has named Dr. Neil Evans as its new acting chief information officer. Evans has worked as the chief officer of the VA office that oversees telehealth, the VA's patient portal, and its mobile program. He has also worked on clinical informatics at the department and works as a clinician in a primary care clinic in Washington, D.C. The Global Positioning System, or GPS, is essential to nearly every industry in the country, yet it's a single point of failure. If GPS is attacked by one of our adversaries, there is no backup plan. Here to talk about the vulnerabilities of the GPS network and what to do about it is Diana Furchgott-Roth, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology at the Department of Transportation, also former Acting Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. She's currently an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Diana, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me on, Mimi. And it's so good to have a guest in studio. You're my first one, and I'm so excited about it. Oh, so wow. double welcome. It's great to be in studio. Yes. Give us a high-level, um, non-technical overview of how GPS works. GPS is basically uh, it's a series of radio signals that comes through 31 satellites, of which 24 are used at any one time. And what it does is it uh, sends signals from the satellites to your navigation system <coughs> so that you know where you are. In other words, it pinpoints an accurate place uh, where you are. So if you're driving along, uh, it'll t it can tell you through different apps uh, that you are on, for example, Wisconsin Avenue or Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C., or it can go crazy the way mine did when I was driving over to the studio today and told me to turn right and right and right again. It's also used for many other economic type activities such as agriculture, precision agriculture, where it can tell a John Deere tractor precisely where to put a seed and where to fertilize that seed and where to water that seed uh, to save uh, uh, environmental costs. Also used for weather also used for weather. Here we have Hurricane Ida right now, and uh, GPS can forecast these storms. It is essential to measuring climate change, water vapor in the air, uh, th the thickness of ice sheets, snow mass. So there's many, many things that GPS does. So 
It, what are the ways that GPS can be attacked? If, if an adversary wanted to attack it, how could they do it? Well, there, there are different ways. First of all, there is destroying the satellites, which is something that it's possible for our military adversaries to do, uh, damaging the satellites. There are also ways of hacking GPS so that it doesn't work. So when you're driving along, you do not get your signal. And there are ways of spoofing GPS. Spoofing it is where you think you're in a different position than you actually are. And this happened to a British tanker in 2019. So this actually did happen? Oh, all these things do happen, yes. So what happened with that tanker? So with the tanker, which uh, made headlines, the British thought that it was in international waters. The Iranians spoofed it to make it think it was in international waters, but really it was in Iranian waters. And the Iranians picked it up and held it hostage. And there have been other examples of NATO operations in the Black Sea being interfered with uh, through this spoofing. Spoofing is actually more dangerous than hacking because when there's hacking, your GPS doesn't work and you know it doesn't work. When it's being spoofed, you might be in a different place than you think you are, and that can be very, very dangerous. Take me through a scenario, Diana, where let's say the Chinese are sitting around a table and they say, you know what, we want to weaken the United States economically. Let's go after their GPS. How do they do it? What happens? Well, one thing they can do is take their satellites, which have robot capability, robot arms, and they can take pieces off our satellites. Uh, they can damage the satellites. And uh, General Raymond, who's head of the Space Force, has warned about this. He has warned about uh, Russian uh, satellites that can take our satellites and Chinese satellites that can damage our satellites. So they can just take out our satellite system. And then what happens? And then we don't have any GPS. Your Garmin watch doesn't work. The ambulance trying to get you to the hospital when you have a heart attack cannot find your house. Uh, the fire engine that wants to come to your house to put out your fire cannot find you. They have to go back to relying on maps. The ATMs aren't going to work either, right? Uh, the ATMs aren't going to work. There is uh, a very important timing component because GPS is positioning, navigation, and timing. So the timing component doesn't work. So you might have a stock market transaction that you think is at 358, and in fact, it would be at 402, for example. Although I have to say that our markets do have backup for GPS. They have purchase backup because timing is so important to our financial system. What about national defense? What happens if there's a failure in GPS? Uh, the military has done things to protect us uh, from GPS. I worked at the transportation department, so I worked on the civilian side of GPS. There are many people at the defense department also working on backup, backups for the military side. Okay, well, Diana, we're going to take a real quick pause here, and we're going to continue our conversation after the break. You can find a link to Diana's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, more of my conversation with Diana Furchgott-Roth about the future of GPS. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the implications of an attack on the global positioning system. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. I'm here with Diana Furchgott Roth discussing the impacts of GPS vulnerabilities. The risks from an attack on the system could have lasting effects on national security and the economy. Diana, we were talking before the break about, you were telling us about all the different ways that an adversary could attack um, GPS. How sophisticated would an adversary need to be to do that? Clearly China, Russia, they could do it. Who else? Well, there are about 900 million GPS receivers in the United States. So to take down all of them, you have to be very sophisticated and you have to take down the satellites. But to just take down a few, to do some spoofing, uh, this can be done with uh, something that you can buy off Amazon.com called RF Hacker. And teens learned how to do this during the game of Pokemon because what they wanted to do was they wanted to be in the same place to catch the Pokemon. But what they could do was they could make their cell phone be in that place without them being in the place at that same time. So they learned how to spoof their own cell phones. And you can buy uh, material, you can buy gizmos on Amazon.com in order to spoof GPS. Well, don't tell many, people many that. <laughs> but what about, I mean... Well, you asked me, Mimi. <laughs> I just answer your questions. But, but seriously, you know, Iran could do this, North Korea. I mean, to the point that it would have national impact. Um, could ISIS, could the Taliban? To the point that it has national impact, you have to be able to have the facilities to interfere with the satellites in the air. Yes, and General Raymond has testified that Russia or China could do this and other kinds of, and uh, he's the expert, he's the head of the Space Force, so we have to rely on him. So GPS was set up and funded by the federal government. Um, what agency is in charge of running it? The Department of Homeland Security uh, and the Department of Defense and the Transportation Department all have parts in operating uh, GPS. There is a site called gps.gov through the Department of Homeland Security and uh, your viewers can go to that if they want more information about it. The Department of Homeland Security keeps track of different kinds uh, of incidents involving GPS. So in 2018, Congress gave the job of securing GPS to the Department of Transportation. What happened? Congress asked the Transportation Department to put in a complement to GPS, a terrestrial complement or backup to GPS, so that if the satellites went down, people would still have signal. They would still be able to find their way. Farmers would still be able to uh, have their precision agriculture. Construction would be able to use precision construction, where GPS tells you where to put in the nail and where to put in the stud. So that sounds great. Let's, let's have that. Why don't we have that? Well, there were three different laws asking the Transportation Department to do that, Mimi. And all these laws were, comma, subject to appropriations. But then Congress never appropriated the funds. But why not? I mean, it seems that everybody's convinced that we need it. Yes, this is something that's of bipartisan interest. And three different laws were passed. But Congress sometimes has trouble allocating specific funds and so far they haven't done so and it's not as though it is large amounts of funds compared with what they're already spending it's one billion dollars over ten years that's about a hundred million a year 
uh, and, and now they're talking the about of the the infrastructure bill a trillion dollar infrastructure bill and a 3.5 trillion dollar spending package for next year it's not that much so many of us don't know why congress has not allocated these funds yet is it because it's not on their radar so to speak is it because there aren't enough uh, i don't know uh, you know people talking about it what's going on yeah it might be because it's it's uh, not on their radar screen it might be because uh, I don't know. Sometimes in Washington, it's the right lobbyists talking to the right congressman. And uh, I'm just an economist. I'm an economics professor. I don't know why Congress hasn't allocated, but I do know that in three separate laws, in 2017, two in 2018, the department was asked to do this. And under my uh, leadership, the Office of Research and Technology produced a report, a 400-page report that is on the website at the Department of Transportation evaluating 11 different technologies that could be used to back up and complement GPS. So, so the path has been laid. So what, what would be involved then in a, in a land-based backup system? When I was at the Department of Transportation, we concluded that many different technologies would be needed, some for urban areas and some for rural and maritime areas. There were some technologies that did particularly well in urban areas because they involved putting little towers on buildings and on traffic lights, what was called a metropolitan beacon system. But this doesn't work for rural and maritime because there aren't buildings to put the little towers on. So then a low Earth orbit satellite system was the most effective. Uh, low Earth orbit satellites are uh, thousands of satellites, a much lower Earth orbit, as the name implies, from the 31 satellites way up in the air that have GPS. And they can provide basically a curtain over uh, the globe that enables GPS to come over rural and maritime areas where there is no little beacons or towers. And how much would something like this cost? So in order to uh, operate this system, we estimated that it was about $100 million a year. But the cost depends on whether it's a public-private partnership, whether the federal government pays for the whole thing, how the costs are allocated. The important thing is to start the acquisition process. And that does not cost that much. That's a matter of about $15 million for the Department of Transportation to start the acquisition process, to look at all these different options as to who should pay for it, how the cost should be shared, whether there should be any subscribers. If you uh, are using the system, should you pay anything towards it? But it's about 100 million a year. In other words, a billion over 10 years. Diana, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice, well, to, nice talking much, to you Mimi. and seeing you in person. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mimi. Our program today covers just part of my conversation with Diana. Visit our website at govmatters.tv for the exclusive extended version of the interview. Up next, lengthy delays for the VA's disability benefits program. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the Sammy's finalist who knocked down the backlog. And remember, we archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back.
For years, the Department of Veterans Affairs has faced lengthy delays with its disability benefits program. Congress responded with a new law to expedite and streamline the appeals process, but the backlog remained at over two, 270,000 appeals. Then Mary Frances Matthews stepped in. She's Assistant Decision Review Operations Center Manager at the VA and a finalist for the Service to America Medal in the Management Excellence category. Mary Frances, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi, for having me on. So what exactly was the problem here? Why were appeals taking years to process? Well, Mimi, as you alluded to um, in your introduction, VA process more and more benefits claims every year. So as the claims um, increase, as the number of decisions that we we're completing increased, the number of appeals also increased in tandem. But what we found was that there was a mismatch between where um, where those appeals were filed, meaning which states and which of our 56 regional offices received those appeals, and the number of highly trained appeals processors that we had within those offices. And so that was our largest challenge, was finding a way to overcome the mismatch between the resources and our um, appeals personnel and the number of appeals at each office. So essentially, if somebody filed an appeal, say, in Utah, that would be handled by an office in Utah, and there might not be enough people. It could have been handled somewhere else, but that wasn't the process at the time. That is correct. All right, and so, as, okay, go ahead, sorry. And two, you know, something else to point out, that some states have much larger veteran populations as well, and so that really fed into, um, you know, creating the, the large inventory as well. So where do you start then in tackling the backlogs while new ones keep coming in? Sure. Well, one of the first things that I did is, and I worked with a team of um, analysts in Washington, D.C. office, and we really took a look at each of the appeals stages and the inventories within each stage. In the legacy appeals process, there are three stages, and they have to be worked linearly. So you can't progress to stage two or stage three if you don't start with stage one. So one of the first things that we did, um, we, we analyzed the number of appeals in each stage at each of our 56 regional offices. And then we also looked at the number of employees that they had at these offices. And we began um, moving workload around. We would, do, we would look at the inventories daily and we would look at the number of employees daily as well because there can't, sometimes there can be rapid shifts in the number of employees available to process appeals. And so we began moving these multiple times a week. Um, that was one of our strategies. And then our second strategy that I think was also important is we really um, revised the production targets that we had for these 56 regional offices, particularly in terms of appeals. We wanted them to focus strategically their resources on that first stage of appeals in the beginning. And then as that stage decreased the inventory in that stage, we were able to move more of the resources towards the second stage and then finally towards the third stage. So really trying to take a very logical um, and systematic approach to bringing down that inventory. Well, <clears throat> you know, Nobody likes change, especially if it's coming from Washington. How did you manage any reluctance there might have been to the changes that you wanted to make? 
Well, one of the things I think that was very fortunate is that um, VBA employees do truly love serving veterans, and many VBA employees are veterans themselves, and so they really feel that personal connection with the mission. So in terms of change management, you know, I already had a good level of buy-in, but as you notice, it can still be hard. So I really worked on communication. I leveraged uh, my existing VBA network with people that I already knew in the offices that were working these. I also um, created monthly and ad hoc calls with uh, appeals personnel. And I opened up um, a chain of communication, a direct chain of communication directly to me. People could reach out to me or my teammates at any time of the day, and we would be there to assist them. We would be there to help them understand why this change needed to happen and how we were going to, you know, how this is going to positively benefit the veterans that we serve. And it obviously worked, Mary Francis, because I understand it's an 87% decrease in, in the backlog. But I want to know, what has it meant to you personally to be recognized as a SAMI's finalist? Well, personally, you know, I was very honored and very flattered. Um, but it, it just made me realize, you know, how important it is um, to have such an excellent network of professionals that I work with. You know, I could never have done the thing, you know, my plan could have never been executed if I didn't have an excellent team of MAs, management analysts I was working with. I also, it never could have happened if I didn't have, you know, a thousand appeals personnel in the field as well. So it really made me step back and reflect on, you know, what a team effort this truly is and how VA really does come together to serve veterans and their family members. Well, Mary Francis, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations once again. You're welcome and thank you again for having me on. Tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates and a behind the scenes look at our program. And that's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.